Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. All right, let's go to the Word this morning. I want to preach the second half of what I began last week. Uh, I have to introduce it this way. If you've been around LifePoint for any period of time, if you've been through our navigation series, this is not new material to you. I hope it's helpful, encouraging, beneficial. It's always challenging to me when I'm studying for these messages. But I want to share with you this week uh, the third and the fourth Uh, core elements of our identity as a new creation when we become a Christian. And last week I started by talking about how important it is for us to see our lives in light of the gospel, for us to understand what the gospel does in making us uh, into Jesus's likeness. Last week we began with Matthew 22, the great uh, commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And then Jesus does this radical thing right there at the end when they're all going, oh yeah. He goes, and the second is like it. Nobody would ever said that before. Wait a minute, there isn't anything like that one. Oh yes, there is. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. You see, what we learned is that Our new creation, we are made worshipers of God who engage the heart to grow an all-consuming love for God because of his love poured into our lives. And we live as servants who live to show that love to other people so they too can come to know Christ in their life. Today, we're going to look at the other two core elements, disciple and missioner. Today, I want you to see that Christ followers live by the power of Holy Spirit, to apply the gospel truth to all of life and to share it with all people. Let's go to this passage, a familiar passage yet again, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. It's become known as the Great Commission. These are some of the last words Jesus spoke to his disciples when he walked on the earth. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Some of the last words of Jesus, but listen Yes, this is the same Jesus that just a few days before walked on the earth. But in the understanding of the disciples, it was a whole new ballgame. Because this was now the risen, ruling, reigning Lord Jesus Christ, who had not only been crucified, but had been raised from the tomb on the third day. Game changer. Everything changes. The way they are understanding, the way they're hearing, and the way that they are listening And what I want to do in running at these few short verses today to understand them for our purposes and what God is teaching us here is I want us to first of all begin, who is it that Jesus is speaking to? We need to identify that to understand the impact of his words. But secondly, once we identify who it is that he is speaking to, we will consider what is it that he has said in his 
commands. First and foremost, who is Jesus speaking to? And here we glean the third core element of a Christ follower's identity as Jesus' disciple. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. It's the innermost group of those who are gathered around him. And just before he ascends into heaven, where he sits today at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning as Lord of all, he's speaking these final words to his closest followers. You see, friends, what we understand in approaching this passage is this, that one must be a disciple in order to make a disciple. One must be a disciple in order to make more disciples. You've got to know who it is that you are before you can understand what it is that our master has commanded for us to do. That word disciple is an interesting word. If you've been around the church or Christianity for much time, it's probably a pretty familiar word. Gets used in a lot of different ways. It's a word that's not unique to Christianity. It's used by a number of different people in different ways, but it typically means this. It's anyone who is a follower who is seeking to learn and become more like the one that they are following. So it's anyone that's, that's seeking to learn and become like the one that they are following. That's what a disciple is in its most generic form. Now, the word itself has a dual meaning to it, and this is important for us. We kind of assume it and kind of presume it in our thinking about it, but it's important for us to recognize this as a Christian because we'll come back in the application in just a moment. But the dual meaning of the word disciple means one who learns and follows. But it's not just learn and follow. Well, I'm better at this than I am at this. And so, or I'm better at this. I don't want to worry so much about this. It's not two meanings combined. It's actually two meanings of learn and follow that are synergized with one another to create a whole new word meaning. That's what it is that we learn and follow to become like the master, the one in whom we follow. The point of a disciple is not just to grow, but to become like the master. You see, and I'm going to give you all a few minutes to just kind of absorb this because I know it can be hard to use this word in church. Change. Y'all okay? Is inherent in the meaning as one engages in the process to become more like the master. You see, friends, a true biblical disciple is one who follows Jesus in order to become more like him, to become more like him. When we see this word in the Greek form of the New Testament, mathetes, it's a word that the New Testament itself uses in a, in a really varied sort of way. I have found about six different uses. Uh, there, there may be a few more, a few less, depending on how you categorize and combine them. But let me just kind of share with what I'm talking about. On one end of the spectrum, the word disciple is used to address those who would ultimately become Jesus' apostles. You say, well, who are those? Capital A apostles. Those are the people, the humans that God inspired by his spirit to write the New Testament. 
So the, one of the purposes of the apostles was to found the church by the apostolic teaching, which we see in Acts 2, at the end of chapter 2 and the end of chapter 4, the followers of Jesus devoted themselves to what? The apostolic teaching. Why? Because it was the revelation God was giving to them that would ultimately be recorded in the holy canon of Scripture known as the Bible today. That's why the Bible is so important. So the word disciple is used to refer to some very important people in the New Testament that became critical catalysts for our Christianity and for our faith even today. Now, if we broaden the circle just a little bit, the word disciple is also used in the New Testament to refer to a, a little broader scope of not just the 12 apostles, but then the really tight knit of maybe 100, 120 or so, they estimate, of those who were really radically sold out to Jesus and followed him. And, and we see them being used in different ways uh, and, and throughout the New Testament, but that's the second way. The third way is we kind of continue to expand the scope and it refers to those that we never really meet by name, but we know that they were genuinely converted and faithful followers of Jesus. And, and, and they became part of the, shall we say, broader crowd that was around and becoming like Christ because they were in and adhering to his teaching. Now, beyond that, the next two groups can get a little cloudy, but if you broaden it out, there's another thing we see that anywhere Jesus went, the crowds gathered. And there are times that the New Testament uses the word disciple to refer to that crowd. We don't really even know who was in that crowd. We don't know anything about the state of their heart or their life. We do know this, that not all of them were what we would consider Christians today. Why? Because if you expand that scope a little more, John chapter six uses the word disciple to refer to a group of people who after hearing Jesus teach hard truths, it says this of them. After the teaching, they turned and walked away and followed him no longer because they would not believe what he said. Wow, that's about as broad of a spectrum of word uses as you can imagine. It's kind of like our word love, isn't it? I mean, we throw that word around, but we understand that there are different meanings to it. So I believe it is important for us to be extremely careful to define what kind of disciple we are speaking of today when we use the word Disciple. May I offer four qualities of our new identity as a disciple of Jesus Christ. What does it mean for us to say we are disciples? The first quality I want you to see is that, we are bec that becoming a disciple of Jesus begins by the confession, Jesus is Lord. It begins by the confession, Jesus is Lord. It's important in a part of the world where we live, where you can walk in without any threat to any church today and you can sit down and everyone else in the room that doesn't know you makes a presumption about you that you just must be a Christian like everybody else. Absolute worst assumption we can make about anybody. Because what the scriptures teach is that to become a true disciple of Jesus begins by the confession, Jesus 
is Lord. There are a number of passages that we could turn to in the New Testament, but I'm going to offer two and, and use a third kind of as a, 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 a help to strengthen that. The first one I would offer is in Acts chapter 2 when the whole church age was getting started and the Holy Spirit had just come upon his people. At Pentecost, when the Spirit came upon the apostles, and, and it tells us that they were preaching the gospel, it was of all people, Peter, who they chose to be the spokesperson. Let me give you a little historical uh, 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 briefing on Peter. Peter's the guy that prior to this date, nine times out of ten, when he opened his mouth, everybody else went, man, would you just be quiet? You're going to help us all, Peter, if you'll talk less. Right? I mean, maybe you have a friend like that. That's the friend that Peter was. Because when Peter opened his mouth, Jesus had to say, get thee behind me, Satan. When Peter opened his mouth, Jesus had to say, stop doing that. Don't do that again. Sorry about that ear. Are you tracking with me here? Peter had an uncanny ability to open his mouth and say the wrong thing at the wrong time in the wrong way for the wrong reasons. But that's not new. Moses did the same thing. God called him. He stood before, uh, to, to stand before Pharaoh and, and to lead his people out of Egypt. What did Moses say? Well, you know, you know God, I, I have a stuttering issue. And God went, come here. Real close. Who created your tongue? You think I can't take care of that? Right? This is not something new. Paul was going to the local government authorities to get official papers so that he could arrest and imprison and ultimately kill Christians. He was speaking out murderous threats. As a matter of fact, the New Testament makes us to understand that the Apostle Paul was one of the leading speakers of murderous threats against Christians in the first century. But then Jesus showed up and appeared to him on the road. My point is this. When Peter steps up on the day of Pentecost to preach, it's kind of shocking. But even more shocking is how articulate, how clear and concise he became because of the spirit of God that was on him. And he made clear throughout the second chapter of Acts when he speaks of all that God had done through Jesus Christ and how he was rejected by those he came to because they crucified him. Peter said, this Jesus that you crucified, he is the Lord. He is Lord. And they said, well, what, what, what must we do to be saved? And he said, repent. In light of the fact that Jesus is Lord, stop denying it, turn, put your faith in him, identify with him and follow him. That's what Peter told him in the book of Acts chapter 2. Paul also teaches this in Romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 10. Paul says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You see, what Paul is teaching is that the heart and the mind must agree. And if you think about this message series, what, what he is saying to us here is that the confession a disciple makes must be the echo of the worshiper's heart. 
The heart that has been made new redeems the tongue to speak a new truth, a new song because of that life. The testimony of a true disciple of Jesus is simply this, Jesus is Lord. That's why towards the end of his life, when he writes the letter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, Peter echoes these words to the Christians who were under severe persecution, losing their life daily. He says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy Always be prepared to make a defense for the reason that you believe in him to anyone who asks you. Why? Because your testimony echoes your heart. Jesus is Lord is the confession that begins our life as a disciple. The matter is very simple, friends. You will only devote your life after you have settled in your heart that Jesus is Lord. That's the first quality of a disciple. Secondly, Luke chapter 9, verse 23 and 24 tells us that following Jesus demands that we deny ourselves first. Following Jesus demands that we deny ourselves first. So often in the culture in which we live, and listen, I love the place that I live. I hope you know that. You spend much time with me, you will know that. I love it. But we must be faithful to clarify what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ because there's no small amount of confusion to this. It's not just about making the right decision and rolling with it. It begins by denying self first. Luke writes, and he said to all, speaking of Jesus, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. You see, friends, the spirit of humility that invades the Christ follower's heart who's been made a worshiper of God also produces self-denial to obey that same Lord and Master as a disciple. You see, far too often we talk about Jesus being our Savior, but we hedge at using that title Lord. When the way that the Scriptures reveal Jesus is that He is Lord, will you believe so He can save? You see, Salvation hinges on Jesus is Lord being the confession of your heart and your mouth. And it teaches us that we cannot negotiate our discipleship. We cannot negotiate our discipleship. This is what we far too often try to do. We want to know, Jesus, what is it that you want from me? Give me all the information and then I'll pros and cons it and figure out if this is what I want to do to commit to obey. Friends, let me go back to John 6 for just a moment when it tells us that after he had taught some hard teachings, verse 66 says, and from that day, many turned away and did not follow him any longer because of what he said. You can see Jesus who's just taught and there's this large swath of people who turn and walk away. It's just too much. You've asked too much of me, Lord. How could you possibly expect me to do that and, and to believe that? This is just getting ludicrous. And there they go. And I'm telling you, nobody's heart was broken more than Jesus's at that moment. But there was another group of people. 
And in verse 67, it says he turned back and he looked at his disciples. And he said to them, do you want to go with them? I mean, the air is thick in this verse. And Peter, every now and then he got it right. All he did was tell what his heart felt. Lord, where else would we go? You have the words of life. Who else are we going to follow? We're going to follow our news feed? We're going to follow the mainstream media? We're going to follow just whatever the person in line at the supermarket tells us? Are we going to, well, who else are we going to follow? You are life to us. You're everything. You are our all. See, some people reached the point where they were no longer willing to deny self. Why? Because their discipleship was a negotiated discipleship. But the person who settled in their heart that Jesus is Lord doesn't bother to negotiate. They deny themselves. They take up their cross daily and follow Jesus. Whatever he asks, to whatever extent he commands, we deny ourselves. To obey him. You see, that's why Jesus says that we are to count the cost. Count the cost of following him. Knowing that he alone is our life. And because of that, we can die to self so that we can live unto God. In Christ Jesus. Daily taking up our cross and following him. Following Jesus demands that one deny self First, third, discipleship process produces Christ-likeness by God's truth renewing the mind. The discipleship process produces Christ-likeness by God's truth renewing the mind. You know, one of the biggest changes that a person must learn when they come to faith in Jesus Christ and become a Christian is that the Christian life is not about what you can do for God. It's about what God has done for you. It's not about your greatest successes, Christ going, well, it's finished. You did a great job there. No, it's about his only success in dying on the cross and his final words to that being, it is finished. The once for all sacrifice for sin has been made, past tense. It is done. It is finished. There is no other that can be made. Hebrews tells us if we expect a second wave of sacrifice to be made, we will be sorely disappointed. It will not happen because it cannot happen. Jesus has done this. And this is what we must learn, friends. It's not what we offer to God. It's what he lives within us. That's why his spirit is put within us. And Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 begins to teach us that this is a process of discipleship where Christ's likeness is produced in us. And how does that happen? By the renewing of our mind. By the renewing of our mind. Do not be conformed to this world, verse 2 says, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may be able to test And discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, growth in the Christian life often gets confused with activity. What do I mean by this? If we're active, 
If we're in a Bible study or if we're occasionally just going through the motions of reading the Bible and checking things off or if we're showing up to church every now and then, I I must be growing because I'm active, right? That's what it gets confused at. If I attend, if I participate, then I grow. But here's the problem. We too often give priority to growth as the end result, Growth is not the end result of the Christian life. What is the end result? Becoming like Christ. What do we call that? Maturity. I've used this illustration so many times, I can't remember how many times exactly, but I used it just this week in conversation. I clearly remember my grandfather telling me one time, Lane, you're only young once, but you can be immature forever. I laughed at him when he said it, but later in life, I began to realize he was saying more than I at first thought he was telling me. (laughs) But that's the way some of us live our life in following Jesus. You see, growth is not the purpose of growth in the Christian life. Maturity is the purpose of growth because Christ-likeness is what we are being made into. The one who is our Lord that we are learning and following from to become like. That's why intellectual entertainment and reading and understanding doctrine and, and, and digging in deep and, and deepening our anchors, it's not enough for us just to be able to win arguments. We're called to be a witness to make disciples. We're not winning arguments. We're here to win souls. That's the one who is wise. That's why it's not just enough for us to go to the activities of Christianity and just go through the motions. God's not impressed. As a matter of fact, he tells his people throughout the Old Testament, I'm not only unimpressed, I'm put off by your motions that you use as substitutes for the life that you are to be living with me. You see, friends, that's why discipleship is a process that we learn and follow. It begins by the intake of God's word that renews the thinking in light of truth. It's renewing our mind. We don't think the same way as we used to think. He said, well, what's going on here? What's he talking about? If you go all the way back to Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve were the only two people on the face of the earth and, and they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, what's the first thing that happened to them? They looked and saw that they were naked. Had they just stripped their clothes off? They didn't even know what clothes were. They'd always been naked. And it had never been a problem. Why? Because they had only been filled with the knowledge of goodness. But now they had the knowledge of evil. And to see themselves in their nakedness was to understand their shame and their separation from God. That's why... When God came to them, he said, who told you you were naked? Well, who do you think it was? The accuser who had told them that if they'll eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they'll just become like God. You know what didn't happen? They didn't become like God. And they felt it. The guilt and the shame of sin set in so much that when they heard the voice of God calling in the cool of the evening to come and walk with them, where are you? 
Where are you? Are we playing hide and seek tonight? What's going on? They'd never run from God before, but because of sin. Because their mind had been perverted, because their mind was darkened. All of a sudden, they first began to think of God in a way they'd never thought of him. He's here to get us. He's out for us. What about yesterday when you walked with him? Did he tell you that? Nope. How do you know that now? I just do. I feel it. He's coming for us. So they ran and hid. And they made some pathetic clothes out of leaves that were already withering because as soon as they came off the vine, they were dying immediately. And when God came to them, he provided for them a temporary way to understand his covering and promised them an eternal way to cover for their sins if they would believe. You see, friends, we've got to think differently about God if we're ever going to think differently about ourselves. The problem is the world's telling you you can think differently about yourself and you don't need God. That's another lie. That's another lie. But if you don't think rightly about God, you'll accept what the world's telling you. Because when you begin to think distinctively about God, you begin to think differently about yourself. You begin to think differently about other people. You begin to think differently about the whole world. And instead of going, what do I think? You begin to ask, what has God said? And what does God reveal? That's the truth that we need. Friends, you'll only live differently from the world when you begin to think distinctively of Jesus Christ. And when you think distinctively of Jesus Christ, you'll begin to apply the truth of his word to the daily walk of your life. And where, where, where you get caught up a little bit, maybe you trip up. I'm not sure I understand that. Listen, there's a secret service going on here. It's called the Holy Spirit. God's put his spirit within you. And do you know what the New Testament teaches you that that spirit is there to do? Number one, to guide you to counsel you. He's illumining the word of God that is in you so you can understand God accurately and see him clearly in yourself and others. That's why it says that the the spirit works in us by conviction, convicts us in regards of sin, to know what we need to repent of and turn away from, convicts us in regards to righteousness in the way that we need to walk in the light of God's truth. But the Spirit also motivates us because he gives us conviction regarding judgment and what it is that we live in if we say no to God and try to go our own way. You see, God's got you covered all the way, all the way through, right there with you, moment by moment, by his Spirit. Learning to walk by the Spirit because it is the Spirit in us that God is using to bring about this new life that he has already secured for us. That's called sanctification. Sanctification. Holification is what that word. Sancta is the word for holy in the New Testament. You're becoming like Christ. This is maturity, friends. We, we shun crowdsourcing. We give very little attention to groupthink and, and what everybody else is saying in so much as we give priority to the truth of God's word. Because while it is true, knowledge changes you, only truth transforms you into Christ's likeness. And that's what he provides for you. The fourth quality of a disciple is that a disciple sees their life 
and sees the whole world differently as they become more like Jesus. Now, I just alluded to this. Let me unpack it a little more. Let me give you a passage of Scripture to see it in. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. Listen to what Paul teaches. For the love of Christ controls us. Worshiper, engaging the heart to grow in all-consuming love for God because now we have a new heart that God's Spirit lives in. That is the love of God that controls us, he says. And why is that? Because we have concluded this. We've reached a conviction of our intellect that aligns with the depths of our new heart. And here is that conviction. That one has died for all, Jesus Christ. Therefore, all have died. You've heard me say this. When you become a Christian, the death of Christ on the cross by faith is your death to sin. You died with him. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, so that you know you will be raised with him as well. Verse 15, and he died for all. Buckle your seatbelt. This is where it becomes especially important for this moment. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Your life is not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, Christian, honor God with your body. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul tells the Galatians. Therefore, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Verse 16, from now on, therefore, watch this, watch this, renewed thinking. We regard no one according to the flesh. What's he talking about? According to the flesh. The flesh meaning the way we saw people in our sin and the way that we saw people because of sin. The chaos, the confusion, the darkened thinking. He says, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, I don't need him. What's he really going to do for me? How could he possibly make a difference? We don't think that way about Jesus anymore. We don't think that way about ourselves anymore. We don't think that way about other people anymore. Why? Because we regard him thus no longer. You see, just as a Christ follower relates to other people differently because we've received God's love, and as a worshiper, we, we engage the heart to grow that all-consuming love for God because he is making us what he has redeemed us to be. And we live because of that to love others and to show them the love of God that has saved us. In the same way, we have come to receive God's love and the gospel is training us to think differently of others. He's renewing our mind with the light of his truth and the life that is there. You see, the main difference that the gospel makes in the thinking of a Christian is that instead of seeing the world to make my life happier, we see my life in this world to bring others to faith in Jesus Christ. You see the flip? They don't exist for me. I'm here for them. And I'm only here, not because I can save them, but because Jesus sent me. As a matter of fact, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he said. And that's the authority with which we come. This is how the renewed mind thinks. It's the fruit of discipleship and the process. It's called maturity into Christ's likeness. You see, when Christ's love controls you, 
the more you live like Jesus to sacrifice of, the more you will live like Jesus to sacrifice of self so others can come to know Jesus. And so as disciples, we engage the mind to be renewed by the gospel truths of God's word and to walk by faith and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, let me say this. In a culture where Christianity is widely accepted, nobody woke up today in our part of the world and thought, man, I hope I don't die today if somebody finds out I'm a Christian. And many people did wake up today in direct fear and threat of that. I think each of us should be asking this question, not am I a disciple, but rather what kind of a disciple am I? Who am I a disciple of? What or who am I following to become like? Are you in the crowd today? Ready to walk away if Jesus crosses that line of acceptability that you've negotiated this much and no more? And if you say anything beyond it, I'm out. Friends, I'm not saying that's not a legitimate disciple. I'm just telling you it's not a Christian. Or have you said, Lord, whatever you have for me, is what my life is for. Use me in any way to bring honor and glory to your name. You see, just as God's love sends us into the world to show the love to others, we're sent into the world to share the truth of the living word. And this is our fourth core element of a Christ follower's identity. We are missioners. Missioners. I know some of you think that's a crazy word. I don't know anybody that doesn't think it's a crazy word. But it's used on purpose. Because everybody has an understanding or a concept of what a missionary is. They just are wrongly thinking that's always somebody else. When I'm telling you, every one of us who've been saved by Jesus Christ live under the authority that he has given to us. If the Great Commission teaches us anything, it shows us that the work of the gospel for God's kingdom is not reserved for a special few but for all who call on the name of the Lord. If Jesus is Lord, is the confession of your heart and your mouth, living for his glory to make his name known is the purpose of your life. You see, maturity in Christ's likeness from the discipleship process always leads one to understand and to embrace their personal responsibility for serving the Great Commission. Let me give you three brief qualities of life as a missioner. First of all, 2 Corinthians 5.20 tells us that we live as ambassadors under divine authority to serve the gospel in all of life. That's why Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. That word therefore means because everything I just said, what I'm about to say matters. That's authority. It's not ours personally. It's bestowed by him. Each person, Paul teaches in 2 Corinthians 5.20, that has been redeemed by Jesus, live as ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal to the world through you. That's why he says, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Friends, God's plan for gospel mission in the whole world, you ready for this? It's you, Christian. It's you. Every one of us, all the time, wherever we are, whomever we are with, whatever we're doing, we are God's plan to spread the gospel so that others can become Christ followers. The question is, as an ambassador, are you faithfully representing Christ everywhere 
you go. The second quality of a missioner is that Christ followers walk by the power of the Holy Spirit to serve as God's witness on earth. Acts 1.8 tells us, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, so often when we talk about witnessing and we talk about sharing the gospel, people go, well, I just don't know if I could do that. You don't have to know if you could. Why? Because Jesus has already said you are. But he didn't say, go do your best for me. Instead, instead, he said, wait until you are clothed with power from on high. What's he telling us today? He was telling the disciples in that day, wait for the Spirit of God. The Spirit came on Pentecost. The Spirit has remained with us ever since. We don't have to wonder. We don't even need to wait any longer. The Spirit is with us. The Spirit is living. The Spirit is transforming us by the Word of God within. The Spirit is sending us and empowering us to speak in the name of Jesus, so that others might come to know him. Would you believe it if I told you, you don't even have to know what you're going to say. If you just open your lips and be willing to speak, the Spirit will speak through you. There's two things he's going to say. Number one, you're going to be able to tell somebody what Jesus did for you. And what it's meant to you. And as you do, you can transition to because of what he did. And that's what he did for you. He's done and he'll do for any others who put their faith in him. It really is that easy. Now all hell is working to stop you. But as Matthew 16 says, not even the gates of hell itself will stop the church from advancing. You're on the winning team. Share. The third quality is that Christ followers live sent to share the gospel with others at all times to make more disciples. When we come back to the text that we began with today, verse 19 says, go therefore and make disciples. It's interesting, the actual imperative of the verse is not go. God's not telling us travel inordinately for no direct reason. As a matter of fact, it's a prepositional phrase that means as you go, make disciples. He lands on making disciples. Why? Because this is the imperative of the gospel that as we are being made like Jesus Christ, we are telling all of what of the one that is making us and inviting them to come along with us to be made to. Wherever you go in life, whatever you're doing, whatever or whoever you are with, that's what as you go means. It's about patterning your life in such a way that you are intentional in the way you live. You hear us say at times, live sent. That's an intentionality. That's a purposeful living that whomever you are with, wherever you work, wherever you recreate, wherever you buy your groceries, wherever you are on line and whatever you are doing right there is where God wants to use you right there today that's where God wants you to bear the witness to his name and after declaring in Romans chapter 10 verse 13 when Paul says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved he, he poses some questions he says how can they be saved if of the one they, they don't know about who it is they believed. And how can they believe if no one's heard? And, and, and how can they hear if no one preaches? And how can they preach if no one's been sent? And that's where we as followers of Jesus say, I've been sent. I'm here now to share 
to tell. He says this, how beautiful are the feet of those who share the good news of Jesus Christ. What a beautiful testimony to a life completely surrendered. You have no idea how God will take that one moment, that one instant of faithfulness that you offer and bring repeated, multiplying, compounding blessing to the lives of others from it. Christ followers are missionaries who engage the feet to share the gospel with others everywhere we go so they can believe in Jesus and be saved. As the worship team returns, let me ask you one concluding question. When you think about your life as a disciple and a missioner, ask yourself this simply. Is your discipleship making you a more faithful witness of Jesus Christ? Because if it's just a process, it's not Christ who is Lord of that process. And if it's only personal, it's not what he's intended. It's personal. It makes it practical. But also is careful to share with others.